I'm Anne Mossop, Director of the UNSW Centre for Ideas. In Part 1 of the 2022 Gandhi Oration, Citizens for Climate Action, Jean Hinchcliffe, an 18-year-old climate justice activist and organiser within School Strike for Climate, argued that a citizens' movement could be the phenomenon that breaks our political polarisation and results in genuine climate action. Good morning. Good afternoon. Well, wherever you are, hello. It's great to have you on board. This is the latest episode of Climate Conversations, and I'm your host, Robert McLean. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Let's have a listen now to what Jean Hinchcliffe had to say when she appeared on the University of New South Wales podcast. My name is Jean and I am an activist. I live in Birch Grove in unceded Gadigal land and also just want to acknowledge that, again, we're all meeting here today on unceded, stolen Aboriginal land. So... Sort of beginning with a little bit about me. Growing up, I've always been a very, very political person. Like, even as a kid, I remember being in debate club and loving all of that and loving getting involved and having these sort of conversations um, about a whole bunch of different social issues. But I, I have always felt sort of pretty powerless to actually changing them. And I remember climate change in particular was a big one in that. I remember being about six years old and one of my first assignments for school was having to do a PowerPoint about a country. And I chose Antarctica and learning about polar bears and ice caps melting and feeling pretty dreadful about the whole thing. But again, it was this massive, large issue that was sort of so far beyond me. So then as I got to high school and I I learned more, I had this sort of greater sense of unrest about a whole matter of different issues. Because whilst growing up, things had always concerned me, um, I always assumed that adults knew what they were doing. <laughs> and, you know, you, you sort of ask about these things and someone say, oh, don't worry, they're, they're figuring it out. And it seemed like year after year, things weren't quite getting figured out. So, yeah, I ended up first getting involved in the Vote Yes campaign for marriage equality. And what was so fantastic about that for me was that it felt like for the first time in my life, I could make a tangible impact on something that was important to me. Because, you know, I didn't have a vote yet, but I could maybe help a bunch of people to get their votes in and and vote yes. And I did a whole bunch of phone banking and handing out flyers and lots of conversations and stuff. And it was this incredible experience for me because for the first time in my life, I felt like I could actually make an issue make a a difference to this issue. (laughs) So yeah, eventually climate change sort of became the front of my agenda. I saw how the UN report, which gave us a deadline of 12 years to avert the worst impacts of the climate crisis. And that on top of this sort of incremental growth of this issue throughout my life, um, from this far off future thing to something that was at our doorsteps as Australians, made me realise that I had to take action. But, you know, I I sort of struggled at first for quite a while because um, I couldn't really find anything that quenched that thirst for me because as I looked around, there were programs made for young people, but 
almost always they were things that felt like adults telling you what to do or you'd have conversations, but there's very, very little direct action. You know, there's, there's very little that seemed to hit hard enough, that cut through, that would communicate the urgency of this issue. And then, very fortunately, a friend of mine sent me a link to the newly formed School Strike for Climate website. And I immediately just sort of was jolted with electricity seeing it because I felt right away that this was a possible solution and this was a possible way that I could actually make a difference in this space and and, and do something that was really incredibly unique. So I ended up emailing that night and saying, hey, I'd love to be involved in any way possible and, you know, sort of help this come to Sydney, do all that sort of stuff. Um, And they responded and were like, oh, we'd love to help you achieve this goal. And then I realized that I was in charge of Sydney and I have no idea how to organize a protest and I was completely lost. And that's how I sort of stepped into community organizing. So from there, I founded the Sydney Group of School Strike for Climate and got involved with a bunch of other kids, as well as a lot of adult volunteers and mentors that helped us along the way. And then we sort of start to suddenly grow in Sydney and I I start to feel some momentum among other young people. And then across the country, we get more and more kids getting involved and we go from a national meeting of maybe five people to like 50 over just a couple of weeks. And then... In particular, that first strike, we were expecting a few hundred people maybe in Sydney and suddenly we have, what, like 5,000 people showing up and 30,000 across the country. And then that steps up again as we keep organising and then suddenly we have 150,000 March 15th that year. And then later we continue working and we continue organising and we get 300,000 across the nation. And that was on top of millions and millions across the globe at that point. And also, uh, for some more context, um, at that point in time, especially that first strike, Greta Thunberg was by no means a household name. The idea of climate striking was so new and novel, and Australia was sort of the first country to take the idea of climate striking and turning it into a major event and a major protest. So that growth from a movement that was completely obscure and yet no one really knew about to something that young people latched onto so quickly and and really truly believed in was just so fantastic to see and something I felt really privileged to be part of. And it was really reaffirmed my belief in in young people's place in this movement and in how quickly we turn something from this tiny little idea into this massive, expansive, really valuable and and hard-hitting movement. You'll find a link to that entire presentation in the show notes. And now we turn to Peter Garrett. Peter Garrett was the lead singer with Midnight Oil, a former politician, and he was a guest at the University of New South Wales podcast. Uh, Thanks very much, Anne, for your kind words, Uncle Peter, for the welcome to country, which I'll return to in a second. Gene, for a fantastic address to people here tonight, and makes me feel pretty good about the fact that I can lose three or four pages out of my written speech, as you've covered it so well. Uh, And Anne, thank you for the invitation and the honour to be a part of this oration, to share this oration with Gene Hinchcliffe tonight. My preamble is that we have to start with the two broken pieces of our history, uh, one from a couple of centuries back uh, and the other one current, and that we have to repair both of them. So let me take you on a brief detour to the birthplace of modern Australia, Botany Bay, 
into which the endeavour sailed in 1770 with its vast collection of massive oil storage tanks crowded together on the southern shore. Some of you will have seen it if you've flown in and out of Sydney. The location actually is emblematic of two crucial components of our modern history. One, which we are now beholden to always place in the midst of what we do and say, concerns the long overdue reconciliation with First Nation peoples. I mean, they were effectively relieved of those adjacent lands and waters as soon as Cook came ashore on that day. And whilst tangentially related to climate, this really is our unfinished business. We've got to remove that stain from our recent history. We have to finally acknowledge and make good the call for justice, which we've seen pronounced upon most recently in that very eloquent Uluru Statement from the Heart. And if you haven't read it, please do. Um, It's going to be an absolutely seminal document. It calls for a coming together, a makarata, to remedy the loss of land, of culture, uh, and the continuing disadvantage that First Australians still endure. And it seeks overdue recognition for them and treatment as equals and that recognition in our modern founding document, the Constitution. The second component of our recent history concerns the running down, the constant running down and plundering of the environment since Cook's arrival. We can see it in the poor health statistics of the State of Environment reports, which the current government's refusing to release, And it's explained in part by the generally low priority governments accord to protection of our natural ecosystems. So notwithstanding our fantastic national parks, our striking landscapes, the extensive remnant forests, the mangroves, the wetlands, the reefs, the offshore islands that are so beloved uh, of our tourist brochures and the tourism industry, the underlying health of our ecology is poor and worsening. Stressed rivers, coastline and inshore waters under siege. I sometimes think they're under siege from domain if you read the Sydney Morning Herald, but it's really from the depredations of overdevelopment, industrial scale fishing, our landscapes blighted by feral weeds and animals. Has anyone driven west of the Great Divide from Charters Towers down towards Sejuna? on any of those roads, and all you see is weeds, fences and weeds and shitty soil. And of course, land clearing continuing apace, endangering our beloved native species with extinction. Surely you might ask, we can't allow this to happen here in one of the wealthiest nations on earth. And yet it is happening right here and It's a line from a song right now. Looming, of course, over all these discrete threats, as we know, is a climate in flux, getting hotter, creating mass disturbances and damage, turbocharging extreme weather. And hardly a day, it seems to me, goes by without graphic examples popping up in the media. The current heatwave in India, where the entire nation of around 1.4 billion people 
are experiencing record-breaking temperatures and many will suffer. The super floods in South Africa, again with numerous fatalities. The wildfires in California, the associated flow-ons, the crop failure, the infrastructure damage, we all know the story. We know how serious it is and we know how it's affecting people deeply. A climate activist who's just died after setting himself alight in desperation in front of the US Supreme Court. And yet, in the media today, a new report finding that replacing the largest coal-fired power plant in New South Wales with rooftop solar panels, of which we are pretty good at doing, would provide more than 50,000 jobs as opposed to some 1,500 jobs if it were to be replaced by a new gas plant. The figures don't lie, despite the fact that in this crucial time that we're in, we all, at least I do, feel like we're straddling the line between despair and opportunity. You'll also find a link to that podcast in the show notes. Meanwhile, American writer Mary Anise Hegler says, in a story headed, Climate Denial's Racist Roots, I always love summer. I love the way my hair gets big in the humidity and my skin gets bronze with the sun. I love not needing a sweater or closed toe shoes. In fact, I used to wish that my birthday came in the hot stickiness of August instead of the mild dullness of November. Now, though, when the temperatures begin to climb, the pit in my stomach falls. But it's not the heat that scares me the most. That would be the violence. Hegler continues, It's well documented that increased heat and climate instability leads to increased rates of violence. That means within households, between strangers from the state, often police against civilians, and even between states. Now imagine that playing out in a world like ours, where the conflict and media ecosystems have turned into fractured realities, that have turned into a sort of choose-your-own hellscape, that have turned our society into fighting factions without clear sides. Add climate change on top of that, and you've got a recipe for catastrophe. And it wasn't denial that got us here. You'll find a link to that story in the show notes. We've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. And until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And should you have enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share with your friends. Mm-hmm.